Okay, let's jump into this. Um, if you have your Bibles, what I would like for you to do is there's a couple of places I want to look at this morning to set up our material. We'll be going to be in Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5 and running through verse 16. Um, but I want to begin in Acts chapter 2, um, which is kind of an important text because what we're dealing with in the pastoral epistles, uh, for those of you that maybe, may, I don't know, maybe this is even your first time tonight, we have been spending this entire uh, year, actually, so beginning in last fall, walking through First uh, and Second Timothy and then Titus. And so that's been the, kind of the course of events that we've been looking at. Um, and these books are written by Paul to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, as he helps establish the leadership which will then lead the churches in the city of Ephesus. So that's what's happening. Ephesus is a town where Paul appeared and where Paul was instrumental in planting the church. And a lot of people look at, they describe, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard people describe Paul as the great church planter who planted all these churches everywhere. Um, and that is true. Hear me. He did plant a lot of churches. I, I think the Holy Spirit may have a better way of describing what really happened, to be honest with you. And I think Paul would agree with the Holy Spirit. So that's what's happening to Timothy in the city of Ephesus. And then you have the next book, which is Paul writing to Titus, who he left behind. We're going to see that in verse 5 in the city of Crete. Okay, Paul talked about this a little bit last week, describing the background to it. But it's interesting, like, this is a great question. Well, how did the gospel get there? And what I love, and I, I go to the last word, last word, singular, of the book of Acts, which um, maybe of you heard me go off on this idea because the, the last word is an adjective describing how the gospel, the noun, is acting and the word is unhinderedly. The gospel cannot be stopped. <laughs> so Paul is in prison, but hey, good news, the gospel is not. It moves on in spite of Jim Johnson. It just moves on. The spirit wind, like the Jesus describes, think of this statement, the wind blows wherever it chooses. And it is so good for us to get recognition of that. And so one of the things I love about this book is it describes Paul leaving Titus at Crete, an island not too far off of Italy. And Paul's saying, I left you there to, to do some things specifically. It's like stuff's already happening there. Well, how did that stuff get there? And again, I'll tell you, it's called the Holy Spirit, which moves wherever and however it wants. I get this question often, what do you think about demon possession? What do you think about that? Can that happen today? And I have my answer, and I describe it. And here's what I think, and here's what I think, and here's the biblical evidence. This is stuff, and this, these are some implications. I give this big, long speech, and then I say at the very end. But you do know <laughs> that God can do whatever God wants to do. And I always will submit myself to the, to the word of God and then ultimately to God himself. I'm never going to sit there and argue with God, my understanding of his word. He always wins. You know that, right? That's where the Pharisees got in trouble. They wanted to argue with Jesus about the word that Jesus wrote. So don't do that. I get that question. What do you think about speaking in tongues? Well, here's what I think. And the Greek word for glossolalia means this. And here's where I see it. And here's what's going on. And this is what I think. And this is what I think. And this is what I think. And then I go... But let me tell you what I believe even more than that. These are all Jim Johnson's understanding. Spent a lot of time working on it. And I'm glad to submit to what God wants. Why? Because God does what God wants. Do you know that? And are you okay with that? Like I really am. I love it. 
And so this becomes one of those texts where I love us loving Paul, but then I love us loving God more and and the movement of his spirit. So take a look. I want to begin in Acts chapter 2, beginning in um, verse 5. So the wind begins to rush, okay? So this is the empowering, I believe a special empowering of um, the apostles, the 11, by the Holy Spirit, actually 12, because they had already um, uh, kind of introduced Matthias to to the group. So it is now the 12, and they are now beginning to speak in other languages and other tongues. In verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound that the multitude came together, and were be- they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And then it begins to list them. I don't know if you've ever gone through this list. But he says, Parthians. So that would be the group from the Babylonian area. And Medes, also in the Babylonian area. And Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia. It goes on. Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia. Phrygia, now he's kind of moving over where the Apostle Paul is going to go, by the way. Started over in Babylon, Elam, he's kind of moving over. Now he's in Turkey as he's describing this. Phrygia and Pamphylia, uh, or sorry, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya. See how they're kind of going around that? And then they end up with um, uh, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. And visitors to Rome, both Jews and proselytes, and then Cretans and Arabians. So there's that long list, which almost take a big circle around the Roman Empire and go, virtually everybody in this area were there. And they heard. And so often when we describe the 3,000 coming to faith, don't we describe it something like this? And there were 3,000 people living in Jerusalem at that time, and they all came to faith, or at least the 3,000 came to faith. Okay, that's what the Bible says. But I think some of those probably were Cretans. It just sounds like a weird name, but Paul's gonna talk about why that sounds like a weird name. They're Cretans, and they go back to Crete. And I, I, I don't know how many times I just take my own, my own church upbringing, which was a bit of a mess, to be honest with you. Like, I grew up in really small little churches, in big cities. Um, and I know what it's like to have a lot of people who are confused. If I were to even count the number of people that came to church and then didn't come to church and people who believed the craziest stuff and people who showed up at church for a little while because my dad said he would take care of them and then they were kind of there for a while. They were visiting with us like a ton. They were always at our house. Mom was always feeding them. And then they kind of, where'd they go? I don't know where they went. Have you, you know those people? This is called church, by the way. It's a, it's a crazy ragamuffin collection of people. And I'm just grateful to be part of that ragamuffin clan. So these people, it appears, from all over the empire, hear the word. And I don't think I ever, I don't think I still fully understand like how valuable and critical this is. Imagine if this didn't exist. Imagine if I just stood here tonight and I read to you Peter's sermon about who Jesus Christ is. And I described, here is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, and here's what he has done. And this God, this this man, Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ, and he has given proof to this by raising him from the dead. 
and the people all the, from all of these different places are cut to the heart. That's a way of saying deeply convicted by their sin. And they proclaim, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, each and every one of you, into the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the what? Holy Spirit. And this is not, this promise isn't just for you, but it is for your children and, and all of those who are far off. It's this wonderful proclamation. I love it from Acts chapter 2. And, and, you know, um, they're the roaches and they're visiting from Crete and they kind of like it. <laughs> wow, this is amazing. Let's go back and tell everybody else. What are we, we're going to tell them about Jesus. Did you catch that part? Because we got we to take that with us. Well, what do we know? Jesus was, was, was the son of God and he was crucified and he's come back and we need to follow him. Well, what does that mean? Yeah, I really don't know. So I'm, maybe you pick up a few more storage in Jerusalem and then you got a ship and you go back to Crete. Now it's your obligation at some level, right? To live out your faith. Have you ever thought about just how complicated that is? How many of you have lots of questions about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and how you're supposed to live your life? Anybody else? Imagine you've got a snippet. I mean, by the way, here's what I love. I mean, this is, this is the first thing it did. The more that I thought about that and the more that I thought, well, that's just impossible. There's no way that could happen. There's no way as great as the roaches are. They could never have figured that out. And, and then I feel the wind blowing. And I'm like, oh, that's right, you. Like I, so you don't, you, don't, you don't need me? You don't need me to take care of this? And the Holy Spirit says, listen, this is what he says to me. Like, I, I may choose to use you. Like, I may choose to use the Apostle Paul. I may, I may choose to use Timothy and Titus. But I blow wherever I want. And so two things come into, come into tension there. One of them is, is that the church of God is of God. And the church of God is under the divine protection and guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit above all men, above all people. Praise be to his name. Amen. Right? Does that not deserve an amen? Yes. And then... God has chosen according to his word, which I can't, it's not like I can hold it against him. He just has promised to be true to his word. And his word describes through the great apostle Paul, whom the spirit chose. The, 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 the spirit says, and now I choose you, Paul, to go and to do these things. And Paul says, and, and that's why you, Timothy, I, I sent to do these things. And so they aren't working in, in competition one another, but they're working with concert, in concert with one another. And it sounds beautiful. And so we don't know where the church in Crete began. And Paul is going to go there. We know one reference of this. I think it's Acts 27, where it describes on his, in his journey to end up in a prison in Rome in Acts chapter 28. In 27, on this voyage, he, he lands in Crete. And, and so we don't really know. Paul described it last week. Paul, not the apostle, but the other apostle, our apostle Paul. He was describing last week in terms of how all these things fit together. And I'll kind of, you can go back and, and listen to that one. Um, but the apostle Paul, most likely after this shipwreck and after all those things happened, because I think Paul actually is set free from the Acts 28 material and does some more ministry and then ends up being in prison in Rome again at a future date, okay? That's kind of what I believe according to church history. But Paul is at some level there, and he says in verse 5, take a look, this is why 
which is kind of an interesting, because if you go back and you look at the, the, the previous words in the text, the, the first four verses, um, you'll actually see that what Paul is doing is describing how the gospel had been so carefully and intentionally entrusted to him. He talks about a God in verse 2 who never, who never lies, who promised before the, be- the beginning of the ages that at a proper time something would happen. And he says, and this preaching came down to me, this message was entrusted to me, and so I'm handing it off. And he's saying, and now you continue the charge. And so he says here, this is why I left you in Crete. But he then goes on to say, let me explain to this a little bit more. Not only did God give this to me, and now I'm wanting you to be aware of that, and I want you to then faithfully uh, be a messenger of the word of God, but he says, I left you in Crete so that you might, and this is where two Greek words in the ESV that kind of separate them, but literally it means that you might put into order that which remains. Which, by the way, you might go, what's the big deal about that? Okay, here's why it begins to matter, is because what we have when we begin this journey of faith, and what we can be so duped into believing, particularly in, in the American church, right, which is where we live, is that so much of almost everything is accomplished when someone says, I believe, I believe, and that's great, like, I'm glad you believe, let's, now, you ready? Let's go. Instead of, I believe, whew, you're done. No. This is the beauty of it. In the concept of salvation, this message that Jesus is preaching, that there is so much that has been done by Jesus that then Jim connects to by faith, by the way. That's how Jim connects to Jesus, by faith, by his works, okay? And now the process of salvation, which again, I love to think of the, 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 the wider and much deeper and more extensive understanding of this word, which is not not go to hell. Saved is, does not equal not go to hell. But it actually has a much deeper concept of made whole, to be rescued, to be made whole, and and rescued in so many ways. And so the Apostle Paul sees what happened, there is still things that remain, which by the way is where you and I then get kind of a sense of our mission. And I don't want to just bleed into my sermon, which I'm excited about preaching on Sunday for Matthew 25, but I love, I I get the question. So like now, now that I've given my life to Jesus, what am I supposed to do? And the answer is, is that in a very real sense, something in me, something in us, something in the world still remains. And so it's not done. It's not done in me, it's not done in you, it's not done in us, and it's not done out there. But the Holy Spirit isn't done. And so what we actually see is the intentionality of saying, of Paul saying, like, I I left you there in Crete, which there's an intentionality. It's not, oops, I left you there. It, like, gives this direction. Like, I I left you there. Like, I appointed you to stay there. It's really kind of what this idea is. I appointed you to stay there so that you might put into order what remains. There is a beginning that has happened in the church, and now I want you to bring that to a greater completion. 
And how do we do this? This is what's interesting. And in a, in a time when leadership and particularly authority is questioned or is mocked or is, um, uh, we become suspicious, right, of leadership, suspicious of institutional leadership. I hear this all the time. Like, I just have a real problem with, you know, authority. And man, I, I, always, I always think it's funny when it's usually a teenager um, or a grown-up teenager, you know, like someone who's in their 30s, um, when they say to me things like, yeah, you tell me not to do something and I'm just gonna start doing it. That's who I am. I'm going, okay, listen, the Bible says we're all like that. I don't know if you're saying anything new. But if it were that simple, if it were that simple that I could just kind of, you know, do that famous reverse psychology, like, do you actually believe that there are people that just, it's just because you told them that that's why they're doing it. I dare you, do the opposite and see what happens. Go out and tell your kids to be wild and rebellious and do whatever you want. You think you're that, by that definition, you're gonna make them into wonderful children? I will not do whatever I want. I will submit to you joyfully. No, it's just one more lie. Like, the truth is, I, I get it. We're kind of confessing. I'm a rebellious person. I like, I like doing what I like to do. But it's, it's not that I'm that kind of person and I just have to do the opposite of what they tell me. I mean, tell me you figured that out. That's just a lie. That's their way of justifying the fact that you had some standards. They're either saying something that applies to everybody um, or else, I, like I said, I love to I, I would meet college students that would have this kind of a conversation with me and I'd say, oh yeah? Um, you, you should not get straight A's. Go get me. Amazingly enough, I never had a student prove me wrong. They always prove me. Anyway, so notice what is being described here is that how are we going to do this by this leadership that we might question? But Paul says, this is why it is very unchristian to ignore leadership to be anti-establishment. Now hear me, it doesn't mean that we're just, you know, blindly following. It doesn't say that at all, but it's just we recognize what it means to be in submission. Why? Because God is the one who we ultimately submit to. And if I can't submit, I remember teaching my kids this, if you can't submit to me, then you'll never submit to your teachers. You'll never submit to the police when you're 16. You'll never submit. And so this is a really important lesson because ultimately, sons, I want you to submit to God. Like that's the ultimate right there. So submission is a wonderful thing. And Paul says, in order to set this, what remains, in order, I want you to appoint, notice what it says here. And the word, that he's gonna use two different words here. The first one is presbyter, right? Where we get kind of the, the Presbyterian church. That's kind of how they organize their material. A, a word that could also be used, like it's in English, elder, it's not the only word that we would use, but the word here is presbyter. It means elder, and I want you to appoint them, which is critical. We're, we're in a, a stage right now at our church where we're talking about eldership. And I love in our 101 classes, or how, do you, how do you get elders in, in Sunnybrook? And we talk about, well, we appoint them. We don't vote for them. Well, no, we decided that we would just do what the Bible says. We're kind of a crazy church like that. Like we actually believe in appointing elders, kind of in the, more in the biblical sense like Timothy did and like Titus did and like the Apostle Paul did. Um, I just have always, I've, you've heard me say this before, I've just always found that voting, and you may, you may say, well, that's crazy, just look at the American uh, electoral process, it's just so peaceful. Um, I, I may disagree with you, but um, it's interesting that 
there is a sense of, and this is, hear me, because this, this matters most. God is in charge. Not Jim, not the elders. God is in charge. So that's step one. Get it. God is in charge. And his word is what leads and directs. Any, any questions there? And we go, no. Okay, but now what? And it's like, okay, then God's word appoint, appoints elders. And notice what he says. In every town, as I directed you, that word directed is sometimes in the, in the, in the New Testament translated commanded. But where it seems to be not so much command, but kind of more of a, you know, like Paul to Titus to like a, a son or to like a, a brother. It's more of a directed kind of a concept, not that a, I command you, but it's more like I, I, I literally, I led you to is kind of the idea. But, but it has more force than just um, kind of a generic. It's, it's got more intentionality to it. I, I directed you to do this. And now he's going to go off, and, and you can write beside here, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Because these chapters are important, not just for elders to know, but like a congregation to know. One of the reasons why I was excited about teaching this, or in a men's Bible group that I work with on Tuesday mornings, well, we just went through First and Second Timothy and Titus there as well, not that long ago. And one of the reasons why I love it is because I think all Christian people need to know this. I loved looking at some young men who one day may be elders in this church. I don't know. And I love telling them, like, hey, this is, what, this is what we need to aim for. This is what we need to strive for. I, I, want, I, want, I know you look at me and you think I'm crazy, but I'm, I'm, I'm telling you guys, like, five years, ten years down the road, like, I so desire to be in the spiritual trenches with you, just battling for the souls of the city and our church. And I, I love getting a little bit more than, oh, okay. <laughs> like, I, I want to I ignite that, right? Because Paul says... In, in 1 Timothy 3, those that desire, and it, it can literally means what it says, desire, like lusts for, like wants, like it's not a negative. Those that like really want, but it's a stronger word than just want. Those who desire to be an elder, desire a noble, like a, a, a noble responsibility, a, a noble task. He doesn't say, man, you really got to be careful. Those guys that want to be elders, they're greedy, money-hungry, um, power-seeking weirdos. Now, Paul used other stuff to correct it, but one of the things that I love to address and to correct, and I, I do this quite a bit, um, when, when I or another elder first approach somebody and say, listen, the elders have been praying and seeking God's guidance and direction and looking in the different areas of our church where, where men are truly leading other families and individuals, and we really want you to consider being an elder, and then their first response, well, golly gee shucks, Fonz, I don't know if I should be doing that. That's kind of their, their, their response, and I'm saying, listen, I get what you're saying, but the biblical answer is, that's incredibly humbling but I really desire to lead others spiritually. Like God's put that in my heart. Like that's, that's so important that we have that mentality. And I say that to the whole church. We, we need to be genuinely humble in the process, but recognize the Bible says like for those who, who desire to lead others spiritually, that's a noble thing. If anything, and you tell me if I'm wrong on this, truly, you probably won't do it now, but... Um, it's, it's fascinating how we act as though, yeah, everybody that's in power just wants to be in power. And can I tell you what I've experienced over the last, say, 30 years of ministry? Most people are avoiding leadership. They're not running to it. They don't want, I don't want to be held accountable. I don't, hey, what if, what if I want to leave my wife or Susan? 
What if, what if I want to? What if I want to decide to live for myself? I don't want. I don't want that. I don't want that on my neck. I don't want that on my back. I don't want people looking at me and considering my life and measuring up against my life. Forget it. I want to live my life the way I want to live my life. That's usually what I deal with. I don't have a lot of people going, yeah, what I really desire more than anything else is to invest in other men and in other families and, and truly say, like, my life is an open book and I want you to follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's rare. And I, I pray regularly that as a church, like, we're different. That we literally have, and, and as the pastorals describe it, um, men leading other men, and, 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 and by the way, this is not a bad word. Can I say it? And let's not get to say it. Older women, that's not a bad word. <laughs> Can I just tell you how much I love you, older women? And as my wife becomes, I was looking at her yesterday. We were flying back from Charleston, South Carolina. I looked at her, and it was weird. She doesn't even know. I didn't even tell her this, okay, because we got back late last night. But I'm looking, she's right now, she's going to be mad at me when I say this later. But I'm looking at her. She's over in 14A, and I'm in 14B in the aisles between us. And I'm kind of looking over there, and she's just sleeping there, and I'm looking at her, and I'm just, I'm noticing her that simultaneously, she looks like the girl at 16 that I fell in love with, and she looks a lot older, and I'm glad she does. It was kind of a weird moment, where I just kind of looked at her, and I could tell she was the same person, but an older version of that person, and I'm just proud to be her husband still. So it was kind of cool. And maybe because I kind of said some things I shouldn't have said in the airport a little while earlier, I'd apologize for. So I'm kind of looking, oh, she's so sweet. I can't believe she puts up with me. But anyway, <laughs> older women is a good phrase. It's a good phrase. And we need older women. And, and by the way, it's not just age. Some, some women don't, and when I say age well, I don't mean appearance. I mean in terms of like to become like Christ, which is what matters. We're, we're so, men and women, so on the outside adornment and we forget about character and of the soul. And Paul says what? I want older men to teach younger men. I want older women to teach younger women. I want, I, I so want that to be, it is us by the way. I'm not saying, and we're doing terrible. No, we are, we're doing well in so many ways. I don't know if you've ever looked around this church and noticed how many, not a lot of, not a lot of churches go through this, um, a lot of churches are really struggling to find kind of a mixture of both men and women. A lot of churches in America are losing a lot of their males because Christianity is kind of a girly thing. And Paul's saying, listen, I want you to appoint elders and I, I want you to do this because it absolutely matters. Now, so let's see how he describes this. And again, 1 Timothy 3 gives a list as well. Here's how he does it to Titus. If anyone is above reproach, now, before that word just scares you, which literally it could mean um, that I have no ability to accuse you of something. I can't go, you know what you did? See, that would be an accusation. And to be above reproach is there's no accusation you could make. I wrote above it a word that is another way that it, that word can be translated, which is blameless. Now, but let me, can I correct something? So often, when, how many when you hear the word blameless think like, Sinless. Okay? This, this, is what, this is what I love. I, I made this comment the other day with, in, a, in a group of people that we were talking about what it's like to, to be in the Christian journey of being made whole. Kind of finding peace in what Jesus Christ has done and then growing in that. Right? We call it sanctification. But I said this. And I, th I thought it was kind of interesting. And if I invented it, that's cool. And if I didn't, let me know who said it first. Um, Christians are people who learn to sin well. 
And I guess what I mean by that, before you go, I can't believe you just said that. That's a terrible thing. What I want to acknowledge is not, hey, I'm a, I'm a sinner and I'm just like everybody else. That's actually another problem that I have is that we so easily embrace our sin. No, Paul seems to describe in Romans 8 and Galatians that there really is a new way in which we live. But the Apostle Paul and John particularly also understand that when we do sin, when we confess our sin, he is faithful and he forgives us of all unrighteousness. So the Apostle Paul seems to say that we have the power by the Holy Spirit and this new life that we have to say no to sin. And when we do sin, we confess our sin and he is faithful and unjust and he, what does he do? Cleanses us of all unrighteousness. So when I say a Christian, a good Christian person, is someone who knows how to sin well, what I mean is, and you've seen me go back to this a number of times when I try to draw it out on Sunday morning, like a Christian is someone who is following Jesus Christ, who as they grow, they are becoming more and more like Christ as they follow him. And and when they follow him, it's, it's transforming to them. And when they fail, okay, and when they fail, they, they recognize by the Spirit or by another Christian telling them or the Word of God revealing them, however it gets there. And when they see this, they what? What do we do? Repent. And when we repent, what does God do? Forgives us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. So then that means what am I? I'm clean. So the, the idea of blameless, the idea of being above reproach is not that Jim was allowed to be an elder at the church because he reached a level of sinlessness. That's not what he's describing. But he is saying, like, what accusation could you level at Jim? Well, where do you want to begin? Like, where do you want to begin? And honestly, as, as much as it would, like, it would be embarrassing if you started just listing all my sins. Like, I don't have his life as good as you do. If you started listing all my sins, there'd be a ton of embarrassment. But I could say, but yeah, but like Jesus forgave me of that one. Like even yesterday when I kind of, my wife and I had a weird conversation, I said to her, yeah, I probably should have been sweeter with that. And like, that was wrong, I'm sorry. She looked at me and with her beautiful face said, I know. Which I think means I forgive you. She looked at me and said, I know. But it felt like she said, I forgive you. So then what accusation are you going to give me? Like, I believe Jesus forgives me of the sloppy speech that I gave in a moment of frustration. So what are you going to say? Do you see? And by the way, this isn't, this is the way it's supposed to be. Does Paul have stuff in his past? And he considers himself what? Blameless. What accusation are you going to level at me? Well, hello, killed Stephen. Oh, yeah. Do you want to talk about that one? Paul would bring it. Let's do this. Let's talk about this. And then say, and can we talk about this? So the state which matters most, and I want to ride this horse around the room, the state that matters most is your current state of obedience to Jesus Christ in which you are faithfully being honest about your failures and your struggles, and you're in a constant state of following and repentance. That's what he's describing here. So even as we get ready to talk about some new elders that will be a part of our fellowship, we're not going, hey, and by the way, these people here haven't sinned in 12 years. That's not what we're saying. 
We're going, we, we, can, we can think of no accusation that you could level against them that Jesus would never say, uh, yeah, no, I, I haven't covered that one. That's what Paul's describing here. There really is no accusation that can be leveled. No, it goes on. The husband of one wife. Now, again, go back and even what I said, I'm not gonna spend as much time as I did in 1 Timothy 3. So go back and look at some of the stuff I said in 1 Timothy 3. I more than ever believe, and it's not a, it's not a, and boy, oh boy, I have no doubts at all, but I'm, I'm growing in my, in my deep conviction of this, that the best way to translate that, that's a very literal translation, husband of one wife. It would, if you want to be literal, it is a one, a one woman man is how kind of it, it, it is in the Greek. It doesn't even say husband, it says man. And it doesn't say wife, it says woman. But then you interpret it, okay, what does that mean, one woman man? Okay, it must be talking about marriage. Okay, and it's really not so much the husband of one wife, which then we start thinking about polygamy and divorce. I would say the best way to translate this would be a faithful husband. A husband who is devoted to his wife is what he's describing. Now, other issues may come up regarding polygamy and divorce, but the text is describing a, um, uh, a man who is faithful to his wife and his children are believers, are believers. Now, the, the interesting part is, when, again, when we hear that word, we go, oh, okay, so they're not unbelievers. But the word, which is just the word for faithful, can actually have a whole bunch of ideas to it. It can actually mean, like, respectful. And as it goes on, and as it kind of continues, and then as you kind of line it up with the First Timothy 3 material, Although there might be an inclination that, yes, it's good for, um, uh, for elders to have believing in Jesus' children, the greater picture of it is children who have a respect for their fathers. And as you look at it, that's kind of the big idea. Why? And why is this? Because as we lead in the church, the mirror of how that happens is how we lead in the home. And I know, I know that's hard. Hear me. Like One of the things that I love and one of the things that I've even felt when my own children have had struggles and difficulties and I begin to go, wow, like God, can, I, can, I, can I be an elder? Like my kids aren't perfect. And, and by the way, I don't need you to say it's okay. I really don't. Like I'm not even worried about what you think. That's not, that's not my primary concern at all. Like what you think, that'll come down the road, Sure. But not right now. Right now, I'm trying to deal with 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. <laughs> Later, we can hear about what you think of me. But right now, I'm scared of Jesus. And, I wanna, and I'm not in a scared like I think he's going to get me, like, but I want to be faithful to him kind of a way. And he is describing here, I believe, faithfulness to wife, children who are respectful and faithful and not open to a charge of what? Debauchery and insubordination, which is why I think it goes back to the idea of respect. I mean, if they're believers, why do you even have to go into things like debauchery and that? I think it's describing much more. And I've, 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 had, I've, I've had situations, by the way, where it gets really interesting, where um, great men of God have described like troubled kids that they've sometimes adopted and later on in life, it gets complicated and difficult. And I've had, I've had men crying and talking about struggle or having with a son or with a daughter. Um, one, of my, one of the most impressive stories I've ever had kind of worked through in my life was an early, a story early in my um, I guess in my spiritual formation, I was in high school, and our pastor, who was a nationally known minister, their daughter, who they adopted when she was younger, who was always difficult and troubled, and I mean deeply troubled, 
um, became a prostitute and a stripper in our hometown. And he was our preacher and an elder. And, and the way that Alan and his wife Judy were so transparent, the way they just kept giving like openly of the struggle that was going on in their lives and just like just tearing up inside of them and to watch this all in process and to hear the other elders that were saying, listen, like we, we, we know what's going on. We know the story with, um, her name was Jill. We know the story with Jill and, um, and we believe that Alan is, is still qualified to be a pastor. So qualified, we, we've looked at it, we've studied it and there's, this is just a complicated situation. And, and, and sometimes we, we fail to recognize. I think the danger that we always have is, well, then are you saying that none of these rules apply? No, I think all of these rules apply. And I'm not even saying, well, they're more like guidelines. They're really not like rules. No, 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 no. But the, the question that Paul is getting at here, and, and this is where I, I loved what Alan and Judy did. I think if you could say, hey, Alan, what did you do? Like, are you just totally cool with your daughter and all the mess? Yeah. Can I tell you about what we're doing with that? Can I tell you how, how we're kind of being the, the prodigal father who's reckless with grace? Prodigal means this flagrant giving of. Can I tell you how I'm that? Can I tell you how I've tried to hold Jill accountable? Can I tell you how I'm still trying to be Jesus to her? Can I tell you how I'm being transparent? I'm not trying to hide it with her. Can I tell you? And the more that I looked at him and, and, I, and, I, and I trusted these other men around him, I thought, wow, yeah, this is, this is pretty amazing. Like there really is no, no uh, accusation that you could level against Alan and Judy. They really handled it so incredibly well. I just went, wow, like they're really, they're offering that, and it's difficult, right, to be clear about what is sin, to be just literally unbending on what is allowed, and simultaneously gracious with a daughter that you love. And, and you know, for those of you that know about prodigals, they don't leave and then come home and stay at home. You know these prodigals? They, they leave and then they come home and then they leave and then they come home and then they leave and then they come home. And every time they come home, they have a different child from a different guy they've been sleeping with. And to watch a parent and to watch a couple walk through that, I think it's part of what we're describing. And, and you can imagine what it would have been like in Crete where it's incredibly complicated and Paul is giving some really clear examples of, hey, these are the, the benchmarks that I want, and these are children that are respectful. And interestingly enough, even when I had very few conversations with, with troubled kids of elders, I was, I was always really impressed with how much many of them still had a deep respect for that they just didn't agree with their parents. So it's, 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 it's interesting, and you know, kind of gone a little bit beyond kind of the scope of the text, but it's, there's a lot going on here. And I think as a church, we have to always, number one, be faithful to the text, but then understand how this text is written to Titus in Crete, and we have to understand how that applies to us. Verse seven, for an overseer, new word for elder, by the way, this is actually the word that we would translate bishop. Some people argue that what Paul did in verse six is describe elders, and then now since he used a different word, this is like a bishop is an overseer of the overseers. Where he, for how, many of you, how many of you guys have wondered, like, how do you get this idea about like priests and then bishops and then cardinals? Okay? This becomes one of those texts. I don't think the language supports it, to be honest with you. I think it's a, a manufactured idea because it more apparently is two words, presbyter and this one here. Um, uh, it'll come to me, the other Greek word. 
episcopoi, where we get the idea of like episcopal. So Presbyterian episcopal, or where these two words come from, by the way, elders. Um, I don't think it's describing an overseer of overseers, but it's continuing to describe the overseer as like, by, by the way, so this overseer or this elder is God's steward. And he must be above reproach, continuing on that idea. He must not be, and so a list of things that he should not be, arrogant, and kind of the understanding of that word arrogant is not so much, although it's in there, but it's not so much pride as much as, much as it is stubborn. Just absolutely stubborn. Number two, quick-tempered. So somebody who flies off the handle. Somebody who is um, rash is kind of the idea. So stubborn, angry, drunkard, violent, greedy for gain. So the money aspect of this becomes huge. The desire for gain, and you'll see how this kind of comes up. There is a constant picture, I would argue throughout history, about people who are greedy for money are quick to not care about people. They're just quick to care about themselves. And they're also quick to use ideas to benefit their position. And Paul's saying, you really need to be careful about greedy people. Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, that the root of all kinds, not all, but all kinds of evil is what? A love of money. Greed. Okay? So, they don't, want, they don't need to be violent, and they cannot be greedy for gain, meaning financial gain. Verse 8, but, so they're not those things, and this is the things that they are. Number one, they're hospitable. So they're not asking what they can take, they're asking what they can give. A lover of good, which that, that idea is literally like a good lover, a lover of good things, a lover of good works, somebody who loves good. And then this, self-controlled and upright, which is just the word for righteous usually translated in the Bible. So righteous, which again, think about this, so many of us as Christians, are you righteous? How many of us just go, no, I'm not Okay, no, I, I really want us to not become proud or arrogant in any way, shape, or form, but I, I think us pretending um, in some way that we're really messed up is either true, in which case we really need to meet Jesus and figure out why the Holy Spirit's in us, or we need to just like grow up in the way that we describe him. And so for you to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, like, I'm a righteous person, is not arrogant, because where does your righteousness come from, by the way? All your good things you did? Oh, no, no, no. Who? Jesus. If, I mean, how many of you, like, find a righteousness that is in Christ and comes alone by faith? Anybody else in the room? Yeah, so you're righteous. So quit saying you're not. And, and by the way, when you begin to say you're self-righteous, then you need to repent. No, we're righteous in Christ. And, and by the way, we need righteous men. I promise you, I will do my best, and the elders in this room will gladly support me, um, I will never, ever, ever allow someone to be an elder in this church as much as it is up to me because I'm one of many. I'll never re recommend somebody who I do not believe is a righteous man. And I get the complexity of that statement. Righteous. Next, holy, <laughs> which is just the word for saints, right? The hagios, the holy ones. Are you holy? What's your answer? Yes, you're set apart. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. So th these are things that Christians are. Next, and disciplined. That's actually the word, a derivative of the word for self-controlled, although we already see it there. But it's a derivative of the word that's found in Galatians 5, describing the fruit of the Spirit. 
And then it says, it goes on and it says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So in the end, it's not nice guys who are nice on their own. Um, we're not asking. I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been a part of churches, and whenever they're asking about this question of leadership, it's, well, I think he's a nice guy. I think he's a really nice guy. I think he's a really nice guy. I, I use this example going back to my, my days. This really has kind of brought up a lot of um, interesting thoughts that I had when I was in high school looking at the eldership. I had lots of opinions when I was in high school because I was brilliant back then. And I'll never forget... <laughs> when um, a gentleman was nominated to be an elder in our church because he was just, he was such, Bill Ritchie, nicest guy you'll ever meet. Like an incredibly nice guy. And he's, he's here all the time. He's here all the time. And his wife is one of the sweetest ladies ever. And I'll never forget when someone nominated him to be an elder and Bill went, you know I'm not a believer at all, right? <laughs> like I'm just coming to church because my wife is sweet but I'm a geologist. I don't believe in Jesus. That's what he said. Not, not an accusation against all geologists. I'm just telling you, that was him. Very intelligent professor at University of Calgary. He'd studied the dinosaurs and doesn't believe in Jesus. And he's standing there going, you want, <laughs> wait, someone nominated me to be an elder? I don't even believe in Jesus. Okay, and then, you know, I guess they had to get together and say, can he still be an elder? <laughs> he's really nice. And I'm not kidding. Andrea, was Bill Ritchie not nice? He was wonderful. See, this isn't all of these nice things. No, no, no. It's a belief. <laughs> Weird that we even have to say these things, but no. Look at this. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Doctrine matters. And you'll see how that even continues here. As to hold of the word as taught, and then the word so that, and I wrote a Greek word above it. I know that you guys wonder, why is he writing these Greek words? It's the Greek word. When you ever see that, I-V-A, it's actually not I-V-A. It's Iota New Alpha. Okay, it's pronounced hina. It's called a hina clause. And it's, it's literally a clause that is, is describing a purpose. So why do we have elders? So that. And why do they need to learn and believe in the word of God? So that. This is the purpose that matters. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That's what elders need to be able to do. Not be fancy teachers and really cool with their teaching skills like Paul and Ryan and Drew. Not, that's not what it's describing. They need to be able to say, like, that's wrong thinking about Jesus. And that's wrong thinking about the Bible. And that's not how a person gets saved. And that doctrine that sounds real, really, really sweet about there's no hell is wrong. And whether they can do that and be really cool while they do it or whether or not they just struggle through, I don't care. It's not pedagogy. It's not style. Paul says, I never wanted flattery to be what you were impressed with, but the words of Christ that came out of my mouth as I preached him crucified. And Paul says, like, doctrine matters. That's why I love, as we talk to future elders, I love to say, listen, we're going to sit down, we're going to ask some questions, and the elders are going to want to hear what you believe about the word of God and about Jesus Christ of Nazareth and what you believe about him and how you submit to him. We're going to want to know about how a person gets saved. And honestly, the other things in terms of like, we're not going to ask a question like pre-millennial, post-trib, upside-down world or whatever, because that's a lot of weird stuff. But truly, no, I want to know, we, we want to know as an eldership, we want to know about well, what you believe about God, what you believe about the Bible, what you believe about Jesus, what you believe about salvation. Why? Because you need to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and then it continues on, and also rebuke, which is something we, don't, again, don't like to do. 
I don't, I don't really like rebuking people. It just sounds so mean. Can't we just have an agreement parties? No. We need to rebuke those who contradict it. And if I ever come across as somebody that just likes to do that, I really don't. Um, I do have something in me, and I don't know where, I pray that it's from the Spirit. I really do. I pray that it's from the Spirit. Um, I just, <laughs> Andrea knows this, if I feel like something is wrong, I can't let it go. I just can't. And I just pray that that's the Spirit giving a conviction. I really do. I don't want it to be my personality. But especially when it's the Word. I, I've shared this story, I think, once or twice before. It's a hard one to share because I remember when my dad and I got into it, and weirdly enough, my dad and I have crazy conversations about deep things. And we're having a conversation. It was, it was about an understanding of how Christ was in fact divine, dealing with some very complicated first and second century ideas about the incarnation of Christ and how Jesus Christ was one in, both, in God with both essence and purpose. Okay, so I don't know if that's what you talked about to your father, but that was our conversation. And my dad was walking down a road that I considered to be quasi-heretical. And I was a little younger than this, than I am right now. But I began to lose it. And I usually don't do that with my father. And I finally said to him, I can probably remember a few times where I've either said this, this to him or he, I said, Dad, I, can't, I cannot talk about this right now because something is happening inside of me that is making me so upset and I can see, like, if we cannot figure this out, I don't know how our relationship can continue. And I'm just, I'm, I'm beginning to just feel this in me. And I mean, I think you guys can probably tell by how much I talk about my dad, how much I love him. And I just felt like this could get weird. And I remember just, I needed to cool down. I needed to cool off. And Andrea comes in, she's like, what is going on? And I remember, it's about homoousius and homoousius and whether or not, and she's like, what are you talking about? And, and I said, I just can't let it go. I think my dad might be a heretic. <laughs> and we reconciled it. I, 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 now I'm sometimes sure he's a heretic and other times I, I, I but I, I've learned to leave it all to the Holy Spirit, okay? But I'll never forget just kind of recognizing this and going, what is wrong with me? And I spend a lot of time before God, like begging, like where this is just my personality, will you purge me? And like where this is not my personality, but it's truly your leading, may you never, may, may you use me even if it means I'm all alone. And I'm, I'm saying that because I hope that as you look at me or our leadership, that where it's my personality, you actually, I wanna be open, like you can confront me on it. No, Jim, that's just you, you need to stop it. Just need to stop it. And then where it's the spirit, I think we need to listen. I'm not saying that's just about me. I'm saying that about anybody who's speaking through the spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is what Paul's describing, and I believe it's, it's at stake. And I, I want this to be a critical piece that as a church we rally around that, that leaders, not just elders, that's what Paul's describing here, but leaders are those who who teach the flock and rebuke wrong doctrine. And I am now getting so old. I'm 48 now, almost 49. I'm getting so old that I'm beginning to see those things that past generations were concerned about, about the way that things are going and people wanting to have their ears itched or scratched, I mean. They have itchy ears. They want them scratched. And um, I'm becoming more and more comfortable with saying, yeah, like I think we need to address that. I think we need to call that. 
I think we need to, I think we need to really like speak to that. I think we need to challenge our people to be more and think more and submit more to the ways of Christ and to his word. And instead of being more uh, submissive to the world and afraid of what the world might think, that we would take deep awareness of what Paul is saying. And by the way, Titus is in a gross place with nobody that wants to hear. And Paul, if I can say this, Paul doesn't seem to care about that. <laughs> Paul's not going, I left you in a cushy place, you should be fine. It's like, yeah, no, everybody's gonna hate you, but you'll be okay anyway. So notice, this is the, notice the high standard to which he describes. Look at verse 10. Why, do, why did I send you there to do this? Because it's, you know, it's, it'll be quick and easy and I'll meet you in four days. No. For there are many, and then he'll describe where that many are from, who are insubordinate, just like the children that I told you you shouldn't have. There are many who are insubordinate, rebellious, who are empty talkers. The word literally from the Greek means from the hip talkers. They really aren't thinking it through. They're just quick. It's that idea of, it's not, quite, it's not the same word for flattery, but they're from the hip speakers. And by the way, from the hip speakers are savvy. Um, one of the great words that my wife used to always say to me, and I don't think it, I, I just, I love this statement. She would say to me, often when we would argue, just because you're more articulate than me doesn't mean you're right. And she's right. <laughs> By the way, I was right for other reasons. But from the hip speakers, what does he say? These are rebellious, from the hip talkers who are deceivers. And that Greek word there is, I went, I did a little bit of an extra study on this. It's not just deceiving the mind. It brings with it this idea of a seduction. So I'm winning your mind as I'm winning your heart. Aren't they the most dangerous ones? Like I'm somehow tugging at your heart. Does that not just feel right? I find this fascinating in a lot of what I'm noticing in the areas of our world, if you've been following some of our podcasts, on ideas about heaven and hell and the love of God and how we should be open and more inclusive and how we need to be more tolerant. Don't you feel that that is not only giving like this, does this not make sense to be more tolerant? Does this not make sense to be more loving and more, I mean, it's, it's got a mind piece to it, but don't you see it pulling our young people, and by that I mean anybody under the age of 100, do, do, do you not like, feel it pulling their hearts with their minds? That's this word. Don't you do it. Don't you get trapped, heart and mind. No, 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 no. Remember the sound word that was given to you. So these deceivers, and it says especially those of the circumcision party, that word especially literally means I'm talking about those. <laughs> He's describing the circumcision party, which we saw in 1 Timothy, which are those people who have a very outwardly religious idea, strong Judaistic tendencies, strong, I know how to dress the part, I know how to look the part, I know how to do religious type things. But in the end, like Jesus says, they're full of dead men's bones. So they are, they, they have, and, and this is why there, there is a Jewish element. I don't think it's just Jews. But there is around this whole, the whole, the whole region of the world, particularly in Crete, you, you have compilers of religious ideas. And there are those that love to be, um, quote unquote, hard on the body and have a higher level. I mean, is, I, I don't know about you. I'm really drawn to those people, um, like the Amish and those people who are willing to stand out. I don't know about you. Like, I don't know if I want to live like them because I really like my iPhone. But I... I, there's something, is there something about them that's attractive to you? It is to me, to be honest with you. 
Like I see these really religious people who are allowed to, who want to stand out, and I just don't go, you're such an idiot. I go, there's something about you that I really like. Like kind of you do seem more spiritual than me because I was watching a basketball game the other day and I just felt dirty. And like you just seem to be able to put all these worldly things away. Anybody else kind of drawn? I mean, I'll be honest with you. Be really careful if I start acting like that because there's something to me that is fascinating by saying no to things. And, and what he's saying here is, listen, I think what Paul's pointing out is, so do you see where they're coming from? This is the allure, but they're empty talkers. Look at this. They must be silenced. <laughs> Try to do that in today's culture. Our answer usually is, everybody has a right to say what they think and believe what they want, and we need to help them make them feel more comfortable about the things that they think and feel. This is so not culturally appropriate. They must be silenced. By the way, I don't think he thinks beat them up or attack them, but you're not allowed to say that here. I remember there was a gentleman, Roy, who was sitting up a few weeks ago who wanted to share something, and actually the first thought was, okay, what am I doing? The second thought really was, I think he needs to speak. And my third thought was, and if he says anything heretical, you shut him down. And he didn't say anything heretical. He kind of wandered a little bit, but I was able to get to know him a little bit. I mean, but what do we do? We silence those who are saying that are wrong things. Why? Since they are upsetting whole families. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, it says they're upsetting women. <laughs> but here, they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, going back to what elders should not be. So there's a bunch of people running around trying to pretend to be spiritual for financial gain. Shut them down. And basically, you need to stop them in terms of what they're teaching by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Verse 12. One of the Cretans, <laughs> a prophet, that's Epimenides, is, is the one that most scholars believe he's quoting here. Okay, so it's a real person Paul's quoting, Epimenides. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Now, what's funny is very politically correct scholars, so anybody writing over the last 150 years says, yeah, Paul was kind of like, you know, insensitive to Cretans and he shouldn't have said that. It's amazing how much we have to apologize for the Bible. I love Elizabeth Achtemeyer, uh, who is a preacher. Um, now, that may kind of be weird, but yes, Elizabeth Achtemeyer, a preacher, made this statement one time that I loved. She said this. She said, I am here to explain the Bible, not apologize for it. I, I, I need to be reminded of that. And, I'm, and, and by the way, that doesn't mean I can get it right. I can never get it wrong. No, I might get it wrong. And then someone's going to come and say, hey, Jim, you really need to change your opinion on this. That's not what the scriptures teach. But so often, I, mean, I, don't, know if you, I don't know if you ever sense it, but there are times when, when, when we're preaching and we're saying stuff that sounds a little bit crazy, we can sometimes become overly apologetic. And, and brother, would you do this? Quit apologizing. Next time you get that sense from me, Brother Tom, would you do that for me? Don't apologize. And when I say, hey, I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to tell you what the Bible says, don't apologize. And this, the Apostle Paul says, listen, like this is where you are. Cretans had a terrible reputation. It's interesting that like worldly people like Epimenides can say this. Epimenides actually goes on to say something to this effect. There is absolutely nothing a Cretan wouldn't do for money. That wouldn't be acceptable amongst all of them. Oh yeah, I do that for money too. I do that, which again, I kind of go, that sounds like a lot of people I know today. If the value is right, and you've heard the story, right? Guy walks up to a pretty girl, says, hey, will you sleep with me for $10,000? She goes, what? Yeah, would you sleep with me for $10,000? Who do you, 
$10,000? Okay. He said, how about $1,000? She said, what? $1,000. He says, yeah, $1,000. I'm healthy. I have no problems. I mean, I'm, okay. How about 100 bucks? 100 bucks slaps him across the face. What do you think I am? And he said, well, we already know what you are. We're just trying to figure out the price. Isn't that true? I already know what you are. It's just the price. And Epimenides basically said that about Cretans. And I hope he wouldn't say that about us. And the financial gain, really, is what would you do for a buck? It's that, it's that major question. Well, I wouldn't do it for one buck, but I'd do it for $100,000. Notice what he says. It ends with this. This testimony is true. And then that word, therefore, means on account of this. The testimony of Epimenides is actually true. Therefore, what? Rebuke them. And, and the word there carries with another very not popular idea. Bring shame upon them. So this is so not popular in our culture. Should we in some level shame people? Ask that question to your closest friends. They would say no. So yeah, I'm just telling you the Bible seems to more than insinuate that. But I feel sorry about that. What are you going to tell me? Don't apologize. It says rebuke them. And that means, and by the way, like when we do wrong things, shame's not a bad thing. And without a sense of shame for my past, I don't know if I ever really sense the freedom of forgiveness. And when we live in this shameless culture, no wonder people never really experience the, oh, I'm forgiven. It's because I never really felt shame, never really felt guilt. I've always been okay. Look at this. But when we are, when we're free from that, like let's be honest, I've done shameful things and I should be ashamed of myself. And now that I've repented of it, I am free. So what does he say here? Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. I love this. Don't give up on them. Rebuke them and help them be literally of good health in their faith. Be healthy in their faith. Not devoting themselves. Literally the word means paying attention. So not paying close attention to one, Jewish myths. And then number two, commands of people. Which is Isaiah 29 uses that text. Mark 7 uses that text. Jesus warns, do not follow the traditions of men, but follow the word of God. Paul says the same thing right here. So don't allow these people to be devoted or pay attention to Jewish myths or human traditions who will always turn people away from the truth. To the pure, he says, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. The reason why I put that B-A, uh, or sorry, B-A-B-A, is the way that they've done it in the English is really not the best way to do it. Here's how it is written in the Greek, and it sounds more like a proverb. In the Greek it says, all things are pure to the pure. And defiled and unbelieving, to the, those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. So it sounds like a proverb. And that's kind of the way it's constructed. And I love that statement. My dad used to always remind me, well, the reason why your mind went there, son, was because you're already corrupted in your mind. Have you ever noticed like everything sounds like a dirty joke to young people these days? Or people these days? I think of this text. But if our mind was pure, we wouldn't go there. I kind of love it when somebody says something that, that really could be just off color and weird, but they have no idea. I kind of look at them and I go, you are so awesome. I hate, I, I hate that I know this. I hate that I go there. Ugh. This is a great reminder. But their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works, which is an interesting idea. 
we love to talk about how you can kind of do whatever you want as long as you, you know, the Bible always holds together. How many times have you heard me say, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, what we believe and how we live, these things are side by side. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. By the way, the Bible says, if people profess to know God, but deny them by their works, they're liars. They're not confused, they're not still saved, they're liars. The Bible says, call them that. Here's how he describes them. They're detestable, disobedient, and they are unfit for any good work. That word unfit is a word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, which is one of my favorite verses in the Bible now, where it says to us, if you want to know if you are still in the faith, then test yourselves, examine yourselves, and then you will be able to know whether or not you are fit or unfit. And so I love this. Paul is telling Titus, Take a look around. I know you're in a messy situation, but you will appoint these men to continue this message and live out this message that I once gave to you. And the Holy Spirit that began in Jerusalem and has followed all the way across the great sea and is now in Crete will not abandon you. And I promise you, by the time all of this is done, what's actually going to happen is the work that was began in you will come to completion. Holy Spirit does it. Elders are enlisted in it, and we are all blessed by it. Praise to his name forever and ever. Amen? God bless. I love you guys. We'll see you Sunday when I continue Matthew 25.